Trump administration. She's interviewed by former New York Observer Editor-in-Chief Elizabeth Spires. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. Hi, I'm here with Vicki Ward, the author of Kushner, Inc., a book about Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. Uh, it's great to have you here today. I'm, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about uh, two people that I knew a little bit, but not nearly as intimately as I did after I finished your book. So I guess to start off with, what made you want to write this book? So, you know, Elizabeth, um, as I think you know, I have you know, my beat has always been sort of the world of um, money, the intersection of money, power, and the culture. And I was uh, familiar with the culture that both the Kushners and the Trumps came from because uh, the book before this was about the world of New York real estate. And, um, you know, I had known uh, Donald Trump over 10 years. I had known Jared Kushner um, socially a little bit. I, I actually met him when he very first uh, came to New York and bought the New York Observer where, where you would end up working. Um, but I, you know, what I was really curious to see, sort of having understood the very ruthless, kind of unregulated world of real estate, was whether they would take that with them to Washington or whether that Washington would change them. And I think that, you know, at the beginning of the administration, there was all this hope riding on Jared and Banker that they would be this sort of moral center, these moderating influences on President, President Trump. But I think that I saw signs very early on that perhaps they hadn't really gone into Washington for public service. They'd really gone for self-service. This was a family real estate business now running the White House. And you saw that first week of the transition when Ivanka, uh, you know, the whole Trump family gathered for the 60 Minutes interview. And then, you know, her fashion line put out uh, the next day that people could buy her diamond bracelet for over $10,000. And although she apologized as someone <clears throat> uh, very senior in the transition said to me later, but you can't unsee it. And as we know, you know, when she did go into the White House for, for basically for 18 months, she would not let go of that fashion line. You know, this is a, a clear conflict of interest. And people like Gary Cohn, Rex Tillerson really had to sell everything. But it was sort of seemed to be one rule for Jared and Ivanka and a whole different set of rules for everyone else. And I think I also saw the signs with Jared right before uh, the inauguration when, you know, the New York Times broke the story that he had the first weekend of the transition been meeting with his father with a major Chinese insurance um, company. His chairman is now in jail for life. Um, but they, this was a meeting to, um, to, to try to solve this financial albatross that Jared Kushner had hanging around his shoulders when he went into the transition and into the government. Um, and within the same sort of few weeks in the transition, he's also hosting the Chinese government in his transition capacity at Kushner Company's headquarters. I mean, these are the kinds of conflicts that we've never seen before. 
And it was this idea, this sort of, uh, this theme that Jared and Ivanka are not who we hope they be. They're not what they seem. They are people who um, have grown up, are trained to think that rules are for other people. And above all, the fact that Jared has, goes into the government with this enormous financial problem, um, that he and his father, and this is, I think on another level, this is a story of two children who really are still children, who are so identified in each of their cases and controlled by their fathers and their father's financial needs. So all of that, I mean, there are, there are many threads. I often think of this in a way as six books in one, because it, we move from New Jersey to New York to Washington, but then to the rest of the world as Jared is out looking for ways for foreign investors to solve his, his financial problems. So, so all of these threads are why I wrote it. So you knew them slightly in New York. When you heard people saying, you know, they're going to go to Washington and moderate Trump, what was your initial impression? What were your expectations when they went to D.C.? Well, so I was skeptical because um, I had known them slightly. Um, you know, not in, I mean, I was, I didn't know it. I was part of uh, a three-point plan <laughs> that, um, that, that, that a New York PR guru, very famous in his heyday, Howard Rubenstein, came up with for Charles Kushner when he went to jail um, back in 2005. Um, you know, Howard Rubenstein came up with a three-point plan for the Kushners to rehabilitate the family name. The first part of that was to, to sell up out of New Jersey and to buy a trophy building in New York. The second was for, to have Jared own a media outlet, which would not only help control the press, but introduce him to people. I guess I was one of the people I was working for Vanity Fair. Um, and the third point was to have Jared date someone prominent. So, uh, you know, we know how that story ended. So, um, so I had met him when he was fresh to New York, and actually he'd seemed perfectly charming. Um, fast forward to the summer of 2016. Um, Jared by then was emerging as a, as a real leader in the Trump campaign. I was working for Esquire magazine, and we were actually brainstorming as to sort of how revamp the magazine. And I came up with the idea of Jared Kushner and his younger brother, Josh Kushner, a venture capitalist, um, actually is a sort of possible cover story. Um, I mean, we had no idea that there would be, you know, anything sort of uh, particularly negative. What was interesting about them was that they were the right age for Esquire readers, sort of 30s. Um, and because Jared was, you know, there, there obviously with the Republican nominee, uh, for president, and Josh was well known to be a Democrat, that was actually what seemed at that point to be the most interesting hook. But because of my background and my Rolodex in the world of uh, New York real estate, it took me less than a day to make some calls uh, on Jared's reputation in, in his own space. And the reporting on that really surprised me because that reporting showed that he, you know, he's so controlled and calm 
Um, that's his public image, and he, you know, he and Ivanka worked so hard on their public image. But underneath that, there, you know, I heard stories of a sort of a real fury that sounded very similar to his father's temper, which is uh, notorious. He could be extraordinarily vindictive and and very inappropriate. Um, you know, there was a story I told in that piece, basically how he interfered. Uh, in uh, the real estate dealings of WPP, a huge advertising conglomerate. At the time, Jared was friends with its CEO, Sir Martin Sorrell. I mean, that, is, that, that has always been Jared's sort of strength, if you like, he, his relationships with, with powerful people. Uh, and he had suggested to Martin Sorrell that he didn't think WPP was using its... Uh, real estate in the most uh, economic way. However, the WP real estate team um, had already made presentations to their own board with what they wanted to do with certain spaces. So they went ahead and did the deal that they thought made economic sense. Jared read about it. He was so furious that he demanded to come in to WPP and in front of a whole group of people he reamed the head of real estate and said, you know, you should just be fired. And this was sort of like, people were just amazed. Who is this person? He doesn't work here. He, he's a 30-year-old sort of guy working for his dad. And here he is throwing his weight around. And obviously, this, you know, the importance of the story is the fact that this is not a story I think Jared would assumed would ever see the light of day because the head of real estate at WPP is not a powerful name. It's not Rupert Murdoch. He's not, you know, so it's this, this sort of belittling of people who can't fight back, um, you know, who are no match for his money. I thought that was really striking. And the, the other story that I tell in Esquire that I think um, was really striking, something you were involved in, um, the Richard Mack story, yeah. because it shows um, the vindictiveness of Jared, really remarkable. Richard Mack uh, was a fellow real estate heir, um, older than Jared, but they had known each other a little bit socially. Richard Mack and his wife had gone to uh, Jared and Ivanka's wedding, but Richard Mack had a fund, and his fund were lenders um, on 666 Fifth Avenue. And uh, so when, when they were going, when 66 was undergoing a restructuring, um, this would be back around 2010-11, Jared had phoned Richard Mack and basically asked him for a write-down on the loan. And Richard Mack had said very politely, you know, I can't do that because I have a fiduciary responsibility to my investors. Um, well, Jared lost it. Again, this c cool, calm veneer comes right off, starts screaming at Richard Mack. Richard Mack thought it was wildly inappropriate because, after all, Jared owed him money. He's like, you know, I think you're forgetting who you're talking to here. But what, what was then fascinating was Jared's reaction was to come to you, was to come to Dan Geiger, the beat reporter, the real estate beat reporter at the New York Observer. And even after Dan Geiger wrote a memo, spent a week researching, could find nothing on Richard Mack. Right, he writes a memo, says there's nothing here. 
Jared then phoned him back, phones him and, and says, there's dirt on this guy, Richard Mack. We've got to get it. Dan Guy goes bewildered. I think, you know, you're extremely concerned that this is not, um, this is, this is not public service, right? Um, at one point, I think I was reached out to. I know I was reached yeah. out to, and I wasn't interested because I never heard of Richard Mack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to write a piece about someone I never heard of. So, um, the but but that grudge. I mean, he, obviously Jared then took uh, Richard Mack off the you know top one hundred in his commercial observer list. But what was so interesting in the summer of two thousand sixteen, he still minded about Richard Mack. I mean, and that level of grudge holding. I mean, this was all very different from the calm, polished persona that was presented to us. Yeah, that was, you know, my, my experience of that incident is that I was also surprised by the extent of the grudge and how obsessed he was with it. Yeah. So then after I left, I thought it had gone away. And a real estate reporter who was there told me after the fact that when Ken Kirsten came in, he tried to assign the story again. Yes, you know, no, I, yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, I'm aware of that. <laughs> I mean, it's really remarkable. Um, so, and I think that it's it's very, very, very telling. I mean, you have to then look at what happened, what he did to Chris Christie in yeah. the transition. And by the way, throwing the transition into absolute chaos, ripping up the work that Chris Christie had been doing for months, uh, and kind of unchecked. And it takes Jared 24 hours to rip up those the, the transition books and fire Chris Christie. And I think yeah. that you have, you know, so what I hope my book does is show you the psychology behind that. Yeah, well, speaking of the psychology, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot in the book is that if you want to understand Jared or Ivanka, it's important to understand them in the context of who their fathers are. Yes. So let's back up a little bit and talk about Jared's father. How would you describe Charlie Kushner and his influence on Jared? So Charlie Kushner is such a complicated character, right? Um, I think the first thing that you have to remember about the Kushners is that what, what Charlie's parents went through in the Holocaust, they didn't just survive the Holocaust and Belarus, you know, now Poland. They had to fight really fight um you know charlie's mother ray kushner gave a, a you know very striking interview before she died talking about how after they her family had been rounded up in a ghetto they dug a tunnel to escape and as they were escaping her brother was shot and killed because his glasses fell off and he couldn't see and they then found this other group of Jews who were surviving in the bitter cold in the woods. <clears throat> One of those was the man she would marry, Joseph, who took, it was her last name was Kushner. He took her name because she was from the richer, better known family. But even after the war ended, their struggles were not over. I mean, it took them years to finally get over here, where initially they came to Brooklyn, then to New Jersey. Uh, Joseph Kushner went into building because no matter how educated you had been, I mean, they couldn't speak the language, you know, you, you could use your hands. So the, the Kushners became part of uh, a group 
of Holocaust survivors in New Jersey called the Builders because they really transformed the state from um, an, it's sort of an agricultural history to um, much more sort of suburban um, urban enclaves. And Charles Kushner, there's no question, was, should take enormous credit for building um, the Jewish community of Livingston um, in New Jersey. I mean, he created the shul, the mikveh, the synagogue. I mean, you know, so he, so he is uh, he, he's extraordinarily generous, philanthropically particularly, to Jewish causes. The flip side of that is that he would hire for his businesses a lot of the people who worked in the synagogue, uh, the school, the mikveh, and so on. So they, they felt owned by him. So there, there's a leverage, there's a price that comes with all of that. And as Charlie, you know, Charlie Kushner, he was the younger son, he fought very, very hard to be the sort of anointed heir. He wanted to outstrip his older brother, Murray, and be the one to shine in Joseph Kushner's eyes. Jo he, he was the one who uh, took Joe Kushner's slightly ramshackle construction business and turned it into this development behemoth. I, I mean, he was lucky. He used a lot of leverage, and the market was with him. Um, but he's the one who really sort of centralized the whole operation. And he did, you know, Joe Kushner, when he died, he left, you know, it's very common in the real estate industry, you, you divide your assets into different LLCs. So the four Kushner siblings all had these um, shares in different LLCs. And as Charlie Kushner got richer, he, his ambitions grew. He, you know, he clearly had political ambitions. Very, you know, he invited um, Benjamin Netanyahu to speak in Livingston four times. Each visit cost a hundred thousand um, dollars. Invited many other politicians, mostly Democrats. Um, but he started to bend the rules, um, and and one of the Kushner family. Um, explain this mindset to me that it all stems back to what happened in the Holocaust because if Charlie Kushner's parents had had done what they were told to, they'd be dead. So now what you're seeing is a mindset that says we're not going to wait uh, to, to, for Jared to see if he gets into Harvard. We're going to make sure he gets into Harvard so a check's going to get sent. Um, we are, you know... You know, Charlie Kushner, he needed, in order to sort of uh, start wielding real power, he needed to pay, you know, donate to the campaigns of politicians. He wasn't going to wait to ask permission from his siblings to do that. He just took the money. And, um, and what happened was that, you know, his brother and certainly one of his sisters didn't like it. And... Um, started and sued him. But the civil dispute dispute became public when one of the, um, a, an accountant who worked in Charlie Kushner's offices and was actually 
giving information to Murray, his older brother, Sartre, uh, filed an age discrimination suit. That was public. And then the feds, um, then in, in New Jersey, uh, the, the chief prosecutor, uh, U.S. attorney, was Chris Christie, um, saw an opportunity because Charles Kushner was known to be the chief donor and very, very close to Jim McGreevy, the, the incoming governor. And... Um, I think Chris Christie knew that if he investigated Charles Kushner, that, that, all that, would, that would lead to Jim McGreevy. And um, it did, because Charles Kushner had gone with Jim McGreevy to Israel in 2000. He had been there when Jim McGreevy met um, a young Israeli called Golan Sapel, with whom Jim McGreevy would have a clandestine um, homosexual affair. And Charlie Kushner was the one who got Golan Sapel's visa to bring him back to the United States. He was the one who housed Golan Sapel. Jim McGreevy would put this guy on his payroll at an exorbitant salary. He didn't have the right qualifications to be his sort of bodyguard. Um, but while, so while, while Chris Christie is looking at all these avenues, he is also gathering information about Charles Kushner's personal life. And Charles Kushner's personal life um, was not something that gelled with uh, where he'd positioned himself at the pinnacle of this very strict Orthodox Jewish community. Um, so Chris Christie had an awful lot of leverage over him because he had information that he could have aired um, in a public trial that uh, Charlie Kushner and, ch and his wife, Cyril, would have found tremendously embarrassing. And I think that is why Charles Kushner kind of snaps you know, and, does, and orchestrates this appalling sting, very sordid, uh, awful sting on his brother-in-law, who's cooperating, his sister is cooperating with the feds. He sets up his brother-in-law with a prostitute, films it, and then sends it to his sister. And I think once you understand the leverage that he, and the pressure he felt under, this all sort of begins in a way to make more sense. And then, um, but of course the sting, the irony is that the sting is what really sends him to jail because um, I think, you know, I quote Alan Hammer, a, a family friend and a lawyer in the book, saying that actually many people think that Charlie Cushion could have beaten the financial charges, but what he did to his brother-in-law, th there was no way that a jury were going to say, okay, this is a really good guy after that. Um, and he, uh, once he's charged, he... Um, he was also, he wasn't going to risk going to trial to have his private life exposed, um, which is why he very uncharacteristically pled guilty so quickly. But I think you have to, you know, all of this is in there and it's also sorted. <laughs> but it's in there because I think you have to understand why in Jared's mind and in the Kushner, the other Kushner children's minds, their father did nothing wrong. They don't think that he should have gone to jail. 
they, you know, Jared, you know, has said that was a family matter. They don't, they don't see this as, you know, they view the system as being the obstacle here. Um, Chris Christie and everything he represented, they were the ones in the wrong. And that is why it's, I think you really have to understand. So you have someone in Jared coming into government who really has a problem with, this, with the rule of law and the way it works in this country. Yeah. I think, um, you know, my experience with Jared was, was a lot of that. You know, if, if we talked about his father at all or, or his period of incarceration, Jared would maintain that Charlie had done nothing wrong, that he was railroaded by Chris Christie and the media in general. But I always got a little bit of a different response from Josh, and maybe and I, right. I'm not really sure about the other siblings. How do you think Jared differs from the other siblings, and how much does Charlie's influence have to do with that? Yeah, so I think um, there's no question that Jared is by far the, is, the, is the child who was groomed by his father to be his heir, his successor, and the pressure on Jared obviously intensifies and takes on a whole new dimension when Charlie goes to jail because it's no longer about succeeding his father, who had these ambitions, you know, wanted to be the sort of the Jewish Kennedys. Um, it's now about avenging him, right? It's about rehabilitating the name. It's, it's, a, it's about righting this wrong that he sees in his mind. I don't think the um, other children carried the burden in the same way you know you've seen josh kushner didn't feel the need to go into the family business even though charlie kept an office for him um and even more recently you know josh kushner ended up you know going against his parents wishes uh, uh, and you know marrying the person he wanted to marry yeah. i think uh, just uh, maybe for useful uh, purposes of comparison, you know, Ivanka also has a relationship with her father that's shaped who she is and what yeah. her ambitions are. How do you think they're similar and different? So I think that they're amazingly similar, um, Jared and Ivanka. And, and as you, but I, I think it's more. It'll be more surprising to readers in a way how how controlled Ivanka actually is by her father. Because I think a lot of people, certainly in New York real estate, knew for a long time how controlled Jared was by his father. They were very aware, for example, during the restructuring meetings, that Jared would say, I'm just, you know, I'm just putting my lawyer on speakerphone, and I think everyone in the room knew it wasn't a lawyer. It was Charles Kushner. And they were also aware that it was Charles Kushner was a much better uh, real estate developer than Jared, unlike Jared, who is not a detail-oriented person. Charles Kushner does know his numbers cold. And I think they knew that all the, all the real decision-making was always being made by Charlie Kushner. Ivanka is a different story because she has really sort of spun this myth that she's the adult in the room with her father, right, for a very long time, sort of slightly rolling her eyes when he says these inappropriate things. Um, and I think that readers will be more surprised, in a way, to read the scenes that I have when actually Donald Trump makes it very clear 
that oh, you know, he, you know, he's very proud of her and all, but he's in charge, and he's in charge, you know, and he controls her financially, he controls her brand, he controls her identity, he controls her status. I mean, there's one moment in the book where she's she's freaking out um, because Kellyanne Conway has uh, gone on television and done something she shouldn't have done. She was, you know, then uh, t- counseled against and said, go and buy Ivanka's uh, clothing. And Ivanka thinks this has cast her in a bad light, so she storms in and sort of has a fit about it in front of people to the president. And the president sort of looks at her and says, you know, calm down, honey, you sell shoes. Yeah. I mean, a very, very public put down, right? Well, I think Ivanka and Jared have been very good about controlling their own image. You know, they yes. mentioned in the book that they've cycled through teams of PR people. And Ivanka in particular has what, you know, for lack of a better description, is a, a personal brand that's kind of become a business conglomerate. You know, they right. could have stayed in New York when Trump got elected and built their businesses, and she could have continued to build her personal brand. What do you think they thought they were going to accomplish in Washington that would be better than that? Well, I think um, that, so let's, one at a time. For Jared, uh, we already knew, I mean, anyone in the world of real estate knew he had to find a foreign um, lender or investor for 666 Fifth Avenue. Um, The clock was ticking. An enormous uh, loan, $1.4 billion dollars was due in February 2019. And it wasn't even just the debt that was the problem. It was the hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that that the Kushners owed in recapture taxes. Um, And so they, um, you know, they definitely viewed the campaign as a huge opportunity to court the Chinese, the Qataris, you know, all these people who perhaps wouldn't have been interested in this building. I mean, nobody thought that, you know, a partner um, of the Kushners in the building said quite publicly, this building would be worth more if it was just dirt, okay? (laughs) So I think you have to remember that the the Kushners need, desperately need a foreign investment. And the problem is, of course, we have law. We have the emoluments clause to the Constitution that says you cannot um, receive gifts or, you know, bribes from foreign entities. So this was a a needle that the Kushners were looking to thread. So from, you know, so that, you know, there's no question that Jared, you know, goes into this government and there he is. We see him the first weekend. He's meeting with the Chinese and during the transition, you know, he's meeting with endless foreigners, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, a team from Saudi, the Russians. And, and as we know, he doesn't put any of these meetings down on his security clearance forms. Okay, so that's the beginning of that narrative. Ivanka, interestingly, again, um, her business, you know, once her father became president, you know, all sorts of um, uh, department stores dropped it, okay? (laughs) So she also needed foreign money, foreign customers. She needed foreign trademarks. And um, so, you know, I think, you know, and this is why, as I say in the book, 
um, people in the State Department and um, senior White House colleagues were sort of horrified. But number one, she didn't actually sell the business when she went into the White House, but that she would put herself on the call, on these calls that her father was having with foreign leaders, or in the room. And it wasn't that she necessarily said anything inappropriate on those calls, it was just her presence on them. Um, and um, everyone noticed, you know, the Chinese premier would arrive and suddenly Ivanka's brand happened to get loads of trademarks. I mean, it just, it smelt all wrong. And so no matter what she then said, you know, the, the idea of, you know, every, I think we would all agree that the expansion of the childcare uh, tax credit that she very much championed. You know, that was a good thing, but at the same, it's completely undercut by the fact that at the same time, she had her fashion brand and it was a, employing completely appalling labor practices. <laughs> so, it, her, what, you know, her, the, her sort of politics felt like lip service, nothing more. Yeah. It's also that, you know, they've been there for two years now, and you can point to the child tax credit as maybe a, a small win for her. Right, um, but it's all about her personal branding. Sure, sure. And, and when you look at what they said they were going to do whenever they came in, you know, right. almost nothing's been accomplished. And in, in many cases, they've undermined issues that they set about to uh, fix or, you know, uh, advance in some way. And in Jared's case, you know, one of the things that he took on was peace in the Middle East. Oh, my gosh, that's yes. that's a, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. easily soluble right. monolithic problem and ended up undermining some of existing U.S. efforts by shifting back and forth between the Qataris and yes. Saudi Arabia. Yes. Can you speak a little bit? Yes, to yes. What no, so there? you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. I mean, in, in, in fact, far from solving Middle East peace, he nearly put us into a war. Um, so the narrative here basically is that, as you say, he does, he just takes the Middle East portfolio right away from Rex Tillerson who, you know, Rex Tillerson's mistake was that he thought because he had the title Secretary of State, he actually had the job, but no, because Jared just literally takes it away. And then starts these meetings. I mean, when MBS, the future Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, um, first came to the White House, neither Rex Tillerson nor James Mattis, then the def uh, Secretary of Defense, were even there. So Jared... Um, appropriates this relationship, has these, as we know, these communications back and forth and with WhatsApp, not just with, with MBS, he's also MBS's great mentor, MBZ, Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, as he's nicknamed. And um, you also have to remember that in the background, there's uh, the Kushner's old, old friend and, and advisor, Bibi Netanyahu. And Bibi Netanyahu's uh, priorities have now shifted because when, when, when President Obama signed the Iranian nuclear accord, uh, basically Netanyahu, the, the, the Palestinian dispute was no longer Netanyahu's sort of chief priority. Now his chief priority was all about Iran. And it was Netanyahu who sort of thought it would be a great idea if America softened its uh, relationship with Russia. Why? Because Netanyahu believed that um, in return, um, Putin would help get the Syrians, uh, sorry, that the Iranians out of Syria. Now, this is not something 
that any of the intelligence experts I spoke to agreed with. Um, but it is very much something that, you know, BB sticks to. The other thing that happened was that this unusual alliance began where the Israelis um, actually started sort of uh, allying in some ways with Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates. So into all of this comes Jared Kushner, who's grown up sort of at the feet of Bibi Netanyahu. And Saudi Arabia is promising him money to finance his peace plan, but money for perhaps lots of other things as well. There is So it's Jared who pushes for the first US official visit to be to Riyadh, to Saudi Arabia, not exactly a country with shared democratic values. Meanwhile, it gets it's very complicated. The Qatari, now Qatar is a much smaller country uh, than Saudi Arabia, but it's much, much richer. On Saudi Arabia's border, it's in a complicated position. It ha houses an American airbase. That's our security in the area. But it's vulnerable because it's, it's got sort of Saudi Arabia on one side and the ocean on the other. It happens to also share a gas field with Iran. It also houses Al Jazeera, which is, you know, hated by uh, the theocracies in charge of Saudi Arabia, etc. So, um, but the Qataris have lots and lots and lots of money. Um, Finance Minister of Qatar... Um, comes to New York, meets with Charles Kushner in 1st April of uh, um, 2017. Charles Kushner asks him for uh, around a billion dollars to bail out 666 Fifth Avenue. And the Qataris turn him down just because it's a bad investment. I mean, this building, as I've said, you know, may as well be dirt. But M but, and then um, the Saudi summit takes place. And the Qataris notice that they feel slighted by the Saudis at that summit. The emir arrives. He's cut off from his entourage. The, the, the summit is supposedly all about cooperation in the region. But the Qataris are not invited to the, to, to the actual meeting on cooperation. Meanwhile, Jared and Ivanka go for a private, unmonitored meeting with MBS. So no one knows exactly what they talked about. But what, what, what experts do know is that MBS wanted money. He, the war in Yemen, brutal war in Yemen, had cost him a lot of money and oil prices had fallen. Ten days after this summit, Rex Tillerson and uh, General Mattis were in Australia at an annual gathering with all their international counterparts. They were absolutely horrified to discover that the Saudis and the Emiratis were leading a blockade of Qatar. They knew that it, this was about, you know, MBS was going, wanted to, to gain access to the Qatari resources. That's, that's our airbase. That's our security on the line. And they also knew that the Saudis would never, ever have done this without a green light from the White House. They knew it wasn't from the president. The president didn't even know we had an airbase yeah. in Qatar. The green light had come 
from Jared Kushner. And it, you know, it gets worse because then Jared Kushner makes a, another visit to the region. The Qataris actually were able to withstand the blockade. So MBS was not able to, to overthrow the regime and get money that way. So, you know, Jared Kushner appears, they have, they stay up all night. Again, all protocols broken with. No, no one in the State Department, no one national security has any idea, uh, you know, what they necessarily talked about. But days later, um, MBS rounds up six of the seven ruling families in Saudi Arabia, imprisons them, and basically they have to sign over their, some of their wealth to him. Rex Tillerson said to Jared Kushner, Jared, have you noticed the only uh, branch, of the ruling, uh, branch of the royals he didn't round up was his own blood relatives? Don't you think it's statistically unlikely that they're the only ones who are not corrupt? Um, Jared did not want to know. But the interesting, you know, the sort of the, the, the end of the story comes um, in 2018 when uh, MBS comes to Washington and Trump asks him for more money, says, I want, you know, $4 billion to help rebuilding Syria. MBS drags his feet a bit. Then the Qataris arrive in town and uh, say, well, we've got lots of money, but we've got, we've got a problem. We've got this blockade. Very interestingly, Two things then happen within two weeks of each other. The US withdraws its support for the blockade. And a Canadian company called Brookfield, whose largest outside shareholder is the Qatar Investment Authority, announces it's in talks to bail out 666 Fifth Avenue. And the way they do the deal just, I mean, you know, if you ask anyone in, in real estate in New York, it stinks. They did, a, a, in the end, this company does a 99-year lease. They don't buy the building. They do a 99-year lease, ground lease, and the entire lease is paid up front. I mean, you don't have to know much about real estate or be, even be good at math to see that that doesn't make any sense. Um, publicly... Brookfield um, have said, oh, we had no, you know, we didn't talk to the Qataris. The Qataris have said we didn't talk to Brookfield, but nobody really believes that. Um, and my own reporting, I think, since then tells me that the, the, the Qataris definitely felt pressured to do that deal. You know, this is really dangerous stuff. This is Jared Kushner doing diplomacy in the dark, cutting out all... Um, the agencies who, you know, the protocols that have been in place for decades to keep our country safe. There's a reason we're supposed to inform our embassies. There's a reason we're supposed to loop the National Security Council in when we talk to, 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 um, to anybody. Um, but Jared Kushner doesn't understand that because he doesn't come from a world like that. I mean, even in the transition, Gary Cohn the uh, former president of Goldman Sachs, whose office was right next to Jared Kushner, was horrified when he, he kept noticing that Jared was never there. And he said to Avi Berkowitz, Jared's assistant, where is he? Because he knew that Trump wasn't with him, because he could see Trump interviewing people, candidates for the cabinet. 
And Avi Berkowitz said, well, I don't know. He said, the calendar, it's marked secret. And Gary Cohn said to Jared, you, you, Jared, you realize that everything you do from now on is discoverable. You ca you've got, wherever you're going, you have to take a lawyer. You have to take somebody. You can't sort of just go off and freelance like this. But Jared did not, he doesn't come from a world where he thinks that these kinds of things are important. I think, you know, it's funny, his relationship with MBS is something that gives even the most diehard Republicans pause. Yeah. And some of it is, you know, when you see him cozying up to uh, dictatorial regimes, it's, it seems like it's a, it's a combination of naivete and just straight up nihilism. Right. You know, he, he, as you mentioned several times, you know, he and Ivanka think that the rules don't apply to them. Right. You know, how do you function, how do, how do their colleagues function in that environment? What was the reaction? Well, so it causes actually um, distress, understandably. I mean, you know, you've got people who really went into that White House um, to put in a long, long hours um, and who actually made quite a lot of sacrifices um, to do this. And then there they are, surrounded um, by two people who are, you know, undercut them um, at every turn. I mean, you know, Reince Priebus, I, I, I mean, you know, I, I think one of the reasons that Reince Priebus sort of didn't squawk um, when the White House logs got closed, I mean, that was an outrage, right? The idea that the American people should be able to see who goes in and out of the White House is why we have visitors' logs. Um, but he was, and uh, he knew that um, the order to close them had actually not come from President Trump, it had come from Jared, because Jared was having all these networking meetings with people he shouldn't have. I mean, one of the people he was meeting with was Lloyd Blankfein, then the CEO of Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs was an investor in a company called Cadre that Jared had co-founded with his brother, Josh. And not only had he not... Um, divested from it. He hadn't even put it on his disclosure form. So these are not the sorts, you know, he shouldn't, there's no way he should have been meeting with Lloyd Blankfein. Reince Priebus was aware, not necessarily of all those details, but, but of some of it. But he was so busy trying to create some sort of order that it was sort of, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't worth it to him to try and fight that battle. You know, I thought it was significant that you ended the book with the murder of Jamal Shoshogi, yeah. because that might be the, the apotheosis of damage that, you know, Jared personally has done right. uh, during this administration. Um, and, and you highlighted how callous he was about it. You know, he, yes. he viewed it as a PR obstacle to be exactly overcome. Right. Was that surprising to you? Well, by the time I got to the end of the book, <laughs> nothing was surprising to me. Um, no, and it's still going on, right? I mean, right now, as you and I are having this conversation, um, Congress, quite rightly, has demanded uh, to know what actually Jared uh, talked about with MBS when he went to visit last February. I mean, I mean, just, just this February. I mean, yet again, there you have these secret meetings, more of these communications um, via WhatsApp, and Jared sort of dismissing, you know, laughing about concerns about his security clearance. 
and um, you know, saying it's a it's a rough region. I mean, you see again this sort of moral expediency that his father had. You know, oh, setting up my brother-in-law with a prostitute, filming it. You know, that's that's not why. Why is the law involved in that? Why is that a crime? And here again, you see the son, sort of, you know, not worried about his methodology. I mean, I think it's it's really really troubling. Your overall portrait of them is that, you know, their, their behavior in Washington has been characterized by their arrogance, their incompetence on the issues, their unwillingness to learn. How do you, do you think they view themselves that way? Do they, do you think they believe that their tenure so far has been successful? So, I mean, I think what's quite sort of clear is that they don't view themselves or the world, um, the way other people do. I mean, it might even have been you. Somebody mentioned the reality distortion field in, in that, that certainly Jared has, Ivanka has it too. Um, I, do th um, I do think that, you know, now that um, the Democrats have control of the House and they have subpoena power, and now that there is all this focus on the security clearances, and now it's sort of become clear that Ivanka boldly went on television and just flat out lied, you know, about the fact that there was nothing unusual in the way she got her security clearance. I think that um, they would have to notice that their messaging is perhaps, you know, falling on deaf ears. Um, you know, I say in the book that Ivanka has presidential aspirations. But I also do wonder who she thinks her base is. Yeah, you mentioned a uh, source saying that her own brothers wouldn't vote yes. for her. Yes. I mean, you know, and it, it is interesting, right, because, because, you know, where is she politically? I mean, she's, she hasn't cast herself really as um, a Republican, but at this point the Democrats are so repulsed by the, um, by the ethics issues, by the entitlement. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, I, I, you know, it's going, I mean, I think we're at a crossroads. I mean, this is really how I end the book. They have, so far, you know, they are the survivors. I mean, look at the body count around them in this White House. Um, it's, it, it's extremely high, and they are still there. Um, will they be held to account? Will Donald Trump... This is the other really interesting dynamic. Will they at some point become too much of an obstacle for him that he just let, you know, has to let them go? I mean, he goes back and forth on this. He was furious with them uh, over when they misused emails because that's what he'd gone after Hillary Clinton with. And, you know, that, that, that caused him to say to John Kelly, can you just get rid of them? Make life so unpleasant, pleasant that they don't want to work here. But then, of course, it, it, the irony is, it's Trump, president, who can't pull the trigger on his own daughter. And then he seems to forget about it. But I think that if, you know, he's very unexcited about all the focus and that, that there is on the Kushner company's finances. And because, because that leads to an exploration of his finances. So there is a scenario in which he says... I don't want, this is going to be bad for me politically. So, you know, or not, 
or not? I mean, well, you know, you've covered powerful people and, and you know, power elites for the entirety of your career, and, and you know many of the people who were social with Ivanka and Jared in New York, people who've worked with them in real estate, even outside of your reporting on this book. Mm. What happens if they come back to New York of their own volition or not? How are people going to react to them? So it's a really interesting question. There are a lot of people uh, who, who won't want to have anything to do with them. Absolutely. Who, you know, I suspect, like I know, that unfortunately there is a small kernel of people sort of like them, very, very rich, um, slightly ignorant, um, blind and careless. And it's like the line about the Buchanans at the end of The Great Gatsby. Um, you know, rich, careless people who don't really have a grasp of the uh, extraordinary dangers they kind of pose to us. I suspect that group will embrace them. Um, but that's it. Yeah, it's interesting. At the beginning of their tenure, you know, people would contrast them a lot with Steve Bannon and the, and the sort of Bannon-style populism that uh, got Trump elected in the first place. And it was described by uh, somebody, either Bannon or somebody close to Bannon, as believing that uh, the government was bad because it imposed unnecessary restraints on their schemes to make money. Right. And I thought that was, you know, a really great metaphor for what had happened when Jared Ivanka went to Washington. Uh, do you think that net-net, their tenure there, has been worth it for them? It depends on whose framework you're, uh, you're assessing that by. Do I think that Jared has, in the short term, made money? The Kushner family has made money. It seems clear that they have. But whether or not that will cost them in the long term is really, I think, the question that the book poses. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you highlight throughout the book is how gratuitously they've alienated a lot of people. And, and you specifically talked about Michael Cohen, who ostensibly wanted a job right. in the White House, and Jared and Ivanka were instrumental in ensuring that he didn't get one, and that blew up in their faces. You know, can you think of other examples where they, either because of a need for control or, or just feeling like, you know, they, they felt entitled to make right. these decisions? Well, I think what's interesting, actually, about the Michael Cohen thing is that what was interesting to me as a reporter was how people of completely different ideologies would come together and agree um, about Jared and Ivanka. So, you know, for example, so Gary Cohn, um, you know, who's a, a Democrat, and Steve Bannon, obviously, is Steve Bannon, um, would both have agreed that for Jared and Ivanka to alienate Michael Cohen was was they thought stupid <laughs> um, because it would mean much better to keep him in the tent and i think what you know what in some ways surprised me in the reporting of this book well i wasn't expecting that both sides of the political aisle would actually come together um and agree so much about these two i mean that that was um that was very surprising 
you also end the book on a bit of a cliffhanger. You mentioned that one of your most yes. important sources said, you know, when they're gone from the White House, I'll tell you the real story. Yes. So there are, well, you just have to think, Elizabeth, of the people who, who we haven't heard publicly from yet, but we know they have lots. We know, for example, that John Kelly and Don McCann, the ones who thought that they needed to write a memo <laughs> to the file about <laughs> the security clearances, you know that um, the very fact that they did that um, means that they really felt something was amiss. Yeah. Um, they've not really taught publicly. Rex Tillerson has not taught publicly. There, you know, there is a, there is, there is a lot more um, to be said, you know. And it's all, it's all, you know, it's all in the details. Is there any one person who you didn't talk to for the book or wasn't did, wasn't accessible to you uh, that you feel like you'd still like to hear from? Oh yes, yes, but I'm not going to probably throw that out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ruining all chances I've got. But um, yeah, but although, I, but what I did, I, I felt that um, I felt that you know, I really, I really, did, you know, I did cover a, a lot of a lot of ground, and I mean, because, precisely because. Um, between the two of them, they really meddle in everything. I mean, he's, yeah. he's called the secretary of everything. There was an enormous amount of territory. I was in Mexico, China, Russia, Israel. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it was a lot to get my arms around. So is there going to be a sequel? Probably. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, well, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This program is available as a podcast. All afterwards programs can be viewed on our